welcome to your episode 280 of the At Percussion Podcast. My name is Ben Charles, and as always, I have my co-host with me, Carly Vigna. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Doing well. How are you, Carly? I'm good. I'm good. It's a beautiful so day. You, you actually had an in-person gig today, I heard. I did. I did. One of only a few for the past year. I get to play timpani for a couple church services this morning, and... I don't know about you all, but I haven't played a lot of timpani in the last year. I don't have timpani at home, so it's just not been um, happening as often as usual. And it was like pretty, pretty awesome to play some timpani with a brass sextet this morning. It was good. Happy Easter, everyone, for those that celebrate Easter. Of course, this is going to come out a couple weeks later. <laughs> Happy belated Easter. from Happy Africa. belated Easter. <laughs> and uh, Ksenia Komunovic, welcome as always. Hello, Ben. Thank you so much. And Casey Cangelosi. How are you, Casey? Hey, buddy. How's it going? I did some yard work in person today. Very nice. Very celebratory. Yeah. I, used sounds to, like. I used to do it virtually. <laughs> <laughs> that was a real tough adjustment, huh? Yeah, it's really yeah. complicated. Like you got to have all the audio settings right and everything to, to, to do it, you know, optimally. Well, Casey, this episode comes out on April 15th. So what happened on April 15th in history? Yeah, this comes out April 15th. I've got a birthday for you. It's happy birthday to one of the greatest blues singers. Her record company, Columbia Records, tried to market her as the queen of blues, but that didn't stick. What stuck instead was the empress of blues, which I think we can all agree is a lot more like i don't know imposing and it's somehow more powerful queen of blues empress of blues and it's bessie smith in 1894 she made 160 recordings in all the many uh sorry she made 160 recordings in all um in many of which she was accompanied by some of the greatest jazz musicians of all time including fletcher henderson benny goodman and louis armstrong her music and expression was said to reach and grab you as if you were in the front row even though you might have been in the back of the room so um songs author and jazz musician danny barker writes that amongst i mean he wrote a lot about her but something he said along the same lines is that she just upset you uh, fun facts, when Bessie Smith auditioned for Black Swan Records, which we've talked about before on the show, at, at least on a couple occasions, I know I've gone into it at some length, oops, some length at least once, and uh, this is the record company that William Grant still eventually became, like a, had a big directorship as a part of, but um, so when she auditioned for, to become an artist on Black Swan Records, and you look at their roster and notice she's missing, but it's because she stopped her singing to spit and was dismissed from the audition as a result. She was considered to be too rough. Bessie Smith's lyrics often included commentary on social issues and other African-American working class issues. Smith's lyrics were not embraced by everyone as she encouraged African-American women to work and enjoy life in the same way that men did. Uh, the 1960s rock star Janis Joplin once told friends that she felt that she was Bessie Smith reincarnated. I don't know about that, but that's what she said. That's how much she admired her. And it was Janis Joplin who saw to it that the headstone provided for Bessie Smith's grave 35 years after she died in a car wreck. Uh, originally 1937, but then 35 years later, Joplin chose the epitaph and paid for this, this tombstone and uh, put the engraving greatest blues singer in the world. Bessie's relationship with her husband, Jack Gee, was characterized by violent abuse. Bessie was one of the first female musicians to sing about the issue of domestic violence. Let's see, her recording debut, Downhearted Blues, I guess is like the big hit, sold almost a million copies, 750,000 copies in 1923. Before the Great Depression, she was the highest paid black entertainer in the world, collecting as much as $2,000 per week to sing her songs. So happy birthday, Bessie Smith. I'm just sitting here trying to do the math of $2,000 a week, like that's over a hundred grand a year. Okay. That's a lot. <laughs> Dude, then that's over. That's almost, that's $2,000 a week. That's a lot. Yeah. That's if you do the math. <laughs> <laughs> Should be 104,000 a year. But anyway, well, our, uh, thanks so much for that, Casey. Our sure. guest today is none other than Dan Levitan. Dan's compositions are a favorite of percussion ensembles throughout the world, and many have become standards of the percussion literature. His composition teachers include Henry Brandt, Vivian Fine, and Marta, I can never say your last name, Tzinska. How do you say it ever? <laughs> 
Tezinska. Uh, yeah. And he's also exclusively studied tabla playing and Latin percussion. I'm so sorry to Poland. He has received uh, commissions from the Kronos Quartet, the New Jersey Percussion Ensemble, Marimelin, Manhattan Marimba Quartet, and the National Endowment for the Arts, among others. So welcome to the podcast, Dan Levitin. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, uh, Dan, I have to confess, we had a, uh, before the podcast, Dan and I had talked on the phone at one point, um, and uh, I said that the only work of yours I really know is your marimba quartet, uh, but I'm sure the others are lovely, and I, I've checked out some of the others now, uh, and I enjoy those too, but I wanted to talk in particular to kind of start off about the, the marimba quartet, because it's, I think, such a fantastic addition to the repertoire, and I'm very proud to say that my university just purchased another five-octave marimba, uh, so we're going to actually do the marimba quartet in the fall. So Dan, could you tell us about how the marimba quartet was uh, conceived? I know it was commissioned by the Manhattan Marimba Quartet, um, and I think someone had a low, low A marimba, an A lower than the low C on most five octave marimbas today. Um, and uh, yeah, just tell us all about the marimba quartet. So uh, yeah, that was Jim Price, who was teaching at Manhattan School of Music there. And he had uh, put together uh, a quartet to play string quartets. Um, Corey Grossman, Bill Rule, and Bill Trigg were students. And the, five, the four of them would go out to Queens to Jim's house and play uh, string quartets. They read down string quartets. So Bill Rule was the viola player. So he got to be really good at reading alpha class. And then they started to, you know, they started to take their show on the road. They started to perform in colleges, universities, go on road trips and that sort of thing. And I knew them because they had played, a bunch of my stuff had gotten played at Manhattan at that point. And um, they asked if I would be interested in writing a maroon quartet or a piece for them. So I did, and that's where it came from. And um, Jim had a DeMauro that uh, Doug had made some extra notes in the bass. It was like a caboose. So he had this low, low note. And um, I think, see, the standard range of the marimba in those days was four octaves, C to C. It was unusual even to have an A, an F, you know. So, and he was down below that, but I knew that the piece wouldn't get played a lot if it had to have a note that was as low as that. So I wrote in Ossia upper notes. I made sure that it was all gonna work. And um, and yeah, that was about it. Very Is nice, and yeah. You wanna know about the piece or? Well, I, I was just gonna say, if, if anyone's unfamiliar with Damaro Marimbas, uh, they are, amazing instruments and I think that everyone that plays any brand be it Yamaha Marimba One will confess that the Morrow instruments have such a wonderful sound he put so much craftsmanship into them um, but we uh, I know in, in particular the second movement has this like hand muffling thing could you tell us where that came from right so I was writing a lot for unfished percussion those days and um, one of my well, I had a couple of guiding principles that I came out of school with. And one of them was uh, make the piece really practical to play. Um, this was especially from Henry Brandt, who had done an awful lot of radio scoring. And his whole thing was, you want to make it easy to play. You've got to have parts that are perfect. So when you put them up on the stand, nobody raises their head and says, is that supposed to be mezzo forte? Everything is vividly clear and should be practical. So a lot of my, the people that I knew that were writing, when they got a chance to write for percussion, they'd pull out the kitchen sink. They'd be like, okay, this is my chance. And they'd write this giant piece that like, you'd have to bring chimes to play it and would have like two chime notes. And, you know, there are some places where that's not hard to do, where you've got a room with it, but for a lot of people that was kind of impractical. So I started writing stuff using just a few instruments. Like a player would have a couple of cowbells or a couple of drums or just a very small setup. But I found that I needed to have a variety of, 
of sounds. And rather than getting them by pulling in other instruments, I started getting them by doing things like damping. And I also found that it made, my music is very rhythmic. It depends on, on rhythmic accuracy and, and good time. And I found that giving people something to do with their hands when they weren't hitting something with a stick would often keep the ensemble together too. So um, when I went to write the marimba quartet, I used that technique. And it's not very audible, so I kind of don't use it much anymore on the marimba. But, um, you know, I think it doesn't function so much as an audio signal, but it definitely functions in that piece a lot for keeping the ensemble together. Because there are places where everybody is doing the same movements with their hands, but some people are playing a note, some people are damping a note, and it really helps to keep the ensemble super tight, which is absolutely key. Another thing is, I'm not a big fan of the marimba roll as anything other than an effect. To me, the idea of sustaining a marimba note by rolling it just, it's, I don't know, I've never been a fan of that. So, um, Damping notes, striking them while they're damped is a way to have a different timbre other than rolling, which I'm kind of allergic to. There's a big section in uh, the Marimba Quartet where everybody rolls, and I'm good with that. It's a nice transition, it's a separate section. It's almost like a corral or something. But for the most part, yeah, rolling, I don't like to mix it with, with just regular struck notes. Well, I, it's funny hearing you say that because in the second movement, I think there's there's exactly one note where everyone grabs the bar and strikes it yeah. muffled. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a great piece. Yeah, it's it's um, we did it here uh, probably three three years ago, maybe four years ago, and and we'll do it again very soon. And it, it's one of the few pieces that I think it, it's for marimba quartet. You know, I think there's a lot of pieces like I, I can imagine. A lot of marimba rep on other instruments and um and vice versa other instruments rep on other instruments but uh yeah no th th this one fits there in my mind and um i was just gonna ask you about the, like the opening of the first movement it's mm -hmm. it's it sticks in my head the way a, a really contagious melody sticks in your head but it's not mm -hmm. very melodic it's really clever how and I've never, I don't know if I know many other pieces like this, where it, it seems like it has so, so few components of an addictive melody, yet I can mm -hmm. sing it all the way through as if it was just this really, uh, yeah, you know, a, a, a melody that sticks in your head. And, 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 and it just has a sound that I, I, I don't really know where, where else that sound is in music. And I, I'm not even really sure where to tie it to. Can you... Do you have any uh, um, explanation as to like, yeah, where, where do, you, what other sounds is that, uh, is that opening come from? Like, where, where else do you, did, where did you hear that? So that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm, I'm fond of the ideas of intros that have their own character, uh, especially in pop music, and this one, I think. It started, so both movements of that piece have the identical form, pretty much bar by bar. The form is exactly the same. It's dedicated to my wife, and it's a little bit sort of a portrait of the two of us. So it's the same form and some of the same kind of melodic material and some of the same kinds of compositional techniques, but two completely different you know, feels. So I think that intro first was in, I wrote it first for the second movement. There's that, uh, you know, marimba figure that goes back and forth. And this is just kind of a version of that in that slow seven. And uh, that movement has this motif of a note repeated four times. First, really loud, really deep, and then just kind of, Fading off. Actually, both pieces have that, that sort of bong, 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 bong. 
And in this movement, it has, I think, kind of the feel of somebody getting punched, somebody getting hurt, brutally hurt. And so that whole little intro section is, I mean, emotionally what I was thinking of, it's kind of a descent into a really dark place. And when you land there, there's this kind of reverberation. So that's what I was thinking. That's about, that's about it, I think, as, I can, as much as I can dredge up. That's cool. I, it's just like, I, I feel like I can take other pieces of music and say, hey, this kind of sounds like this. And you can kind of hear a piece of this in here, but I, I don't know where, where this is. That's great. And I don't know where it came from. Just like, cool. you know. Yeah, it's neat. Thank you. So Dan, when I was um, studying with Nancy Zeltzman in Boston, you know, she's a huge fan mm -hmm. of your music. Um, I, I, got the I got the chance to play some of the Marin beforehands. I think it was um, not too long after the, the CD was recorded and mm -hmm. she was very excited about it. And it was wonderful to play and thank you for the piece. Um, one of the things I remember it being so challenging about it was the nuance embedded in the music. And I'm wondering if you would tell us a bit more about your approach to articulation on the marimba. Oh, okay. So, um, hmm. yeah, I find, I'm not much of a marimba player, but you know, I, I can get around. And I find, well, on any percussion instrument, as a composer, what I'm interested in is, is not making an audiophile. I'm interested in making marks on paper. Like, you know, in the real sort of super old fashioned classical tradition where a piece exists as this concept of rhythm and notes. And that's kind of the essence of the piece. So if I'm notating something, uh, an idea that I hear in my head and I'm notating it for percussion, I find that I can get away with it if I have three kinds of articulation. If I have just an ordinary note, if I have something that's more forceful, and then if I have a ghost, that kind of note that you almost don't hear, and maybe you don't even hear it, your, your hand is moving, your stick touches the instrument, but it's just very much, you kind of hear it without really hearing it, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right, so that's my approach to articulation on the marimba as well, is that you've got notes and you've got accents and you've got ghost notes and that's kind of it. Well, and that's that's what I remember being what made that piece work so well. And so much of your music is the the attention to the. And if we didn't pay attention as we were learning, like, oh, you know, we didn't get the ghost notes, and we're not showing these three levels and all that, it's like doesn't work nearly as well. And then when we play what you wrote, it's that's that's it. Like that's the that's the magic. So I appreciate your approach there. Yeah. Well, thanks. But that's what I find as a somebody who's writing for percussion. I need to have that. Yeah. If I yeah. have that. I can write music. If I don't have that, I can't write music. I can't make something that you can say. Dan, I've been uh, obsessively watching uh, the masterclass series on writing. And then in investigating some of your deep past, I learned that you actually started your college degree in literature and creative writing, right? Uh, I, yeah, so I went to Bennington College in Vermont. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was so different back in those days. When you wanted to go to college and you were my age, my parents were like, yeah, yeah, go, you know, whatever. You're going to go to college. Where do you want to go? And I'm like, I don't know. I went, to, I was in Dayton, Ohio. I went down to the Dayton Public Library and started paging through this hardbound book of colleges. And I, didn't know much of anything. And there was, you know, so I was reading about these colleges and I was interested in creative writing at the time and Bernard Malamud, I don't know if you know him, he's a, was at least at that time, a very well-known American author, was teaching at Bennington. Although of course, in reality, he's there so that they can put his name on the brochure, but it's like, you know, a couple of people ascend into heaven and study with him every year, but that's kind of it. Which is okay, because once I got there, I went into the music department, which was a fabulous department. 
Um, but yeah, so I was, I went to Bennington thinking I'd probably be focusing on, on uh, creative writing, but then quickly took another path. Has there been anything um, within the world of literature that, or if you, I, I don't know how long you've stayed in the creative writing program, but has there no. been something that you've transferred on to music? Not really, except the desire to say something, you know, so. It's like a, one of my friends who's a composer, Zach Browning, has this line on uh, a composer is someone who writes notes to make himself important, <laughs> writes notes okay. to, to make, make, make something that will last. Um, I feel like it's more like, it's just, you know, everybody's got something they want to say. And that's just, to me, that's the impulse to just, what, what, why, why, do, why, why is it important to even tell a story? I don't know, but I just feel this need to do it, you know? I um I used to teach an introduction to music class and I would, you know, in the first couple of days try to compare music to other art forms as I think kind of is a stock thing to do in that class. And one of the things I would say, description, um, at least in its like rawest form in writing is fairly easy. If I want to describe cup, I just write the word cup. But if I want to describe cup in music, it's very hard. <laughs> it's, I mean, unless you like record the distinct sound of a cup and hopefully everyone knows exactly what you mean. But uh, point being that they, they, they both can tell stories, they both can express things, but um, like writing is very good at some things that music is not and vice versa. Do you find there are certain things you have, you can only say through music? Absolutely. Like that, the, that intro that you were talking about or that whole, that whole piece. I mean, if I wanted to write down something about, okay, what's, how are, how are my wife and I similar and different and what, what it is about personalities, I go on and on forever. But I would never say what is what that piece says. I'd never be able to, it's just not possible. Right, like where words fail, music speaks is the, no, you know, the, the old, even, old quote. Not even so much that. It's not even like, oh, I want to talk about this thing. I want... It's this, this concept you have about the way things are that you want to stay. And it's like, well, this is, this is how it's coming out. Cool. You know, it's like painting. You know, there's a lot, it's so easy to, uh, to say cup, but draw a picture of it. And like you have, now you have a specific cup with a certain kind of thing, you know, the idea of cup is this, is this kind of abstract concept. And you'll never have a painting that is that abstract concept until you draw a picture of a cup and it becomes a word. And now it's a, a word that means the same thing that cup does. So it's no longer a picture. On the other hand, you can take a particular cup it's got a, you know, a chip in it or it's your favorite cup or it belonged to somebody and you can paint a picture of it and immediately convey why it's important to you and you could spend the rest you know pages and pages trying to describe that and you would never do it this right. is this is all bringing me so close to i remember a long time ago i read in an old back issue of progressive notes an article by stuart saunders smith who of course Carly is a great fan of. And it was this whole thing about like, it, it was just a headache. Cause it was like, what does a symbol mean? A symbol has no inherent meaning. A symbol just means symbolness. And it's up to, you know, tradition to give us the meaning. I mean, I was just like, like you're right, but I, I don't want to think about it that way. It's too much. <laughs> but backing up just, just a, a few minutes ago, you had talked about as a composer, you, you like to, be the person to sort of put put ink on a page and not not try to recreate a recording on a page but rather put ink on a page and uh like in our conversation before the episode like that that sounds a lot like bach like bach was writing something like a few gets this very formal thing it wasn't so much about the fact that it was going to be played on an organ or a harpsichord or a violin something like that it's it's just a few and that's maybe why box music works so well as transcriptions and you have your uh, baroque suite from marimba which i had a student oh god probably seven years ago at this point played a few movements of and i there, it's one of those there's not 
there's not an abundance of information. There's a lot of space for the player to interpret. But as we find with Bach, it's it's possible to uh, overinterpret and romanticize things. So I, I guess especially in the Baroque suite, was that your intention that the the player would take your music and interpret it? Was that, is that sort of your general goal in composing? Uh, yeah, for sure. Now in that piece in particular, of course, it's obviously just a kind of a riff on the idea of a, of a Baroque suite, right? Especially box suites. So it's got its, you know, prelude, it's got its allemande and, and all that kind of, and the time and the feel is loosely related to what we associate with those forms. But when I look at that music, I don't see dynamics. I don't see articulation. If I do, it's been added in by an editor at some point. So I wanted it to look on the page kind of like that music looked on the page when it was written, which is just a bunch of notes. It's got pitches, it's got time, and after that, you're on your own. And it kind of, it kind of wants to be played a certain way. Um, and in that piece, I think when I first wrote it, I did it with right hand, left hand. It was important to me, right hand, left hand. I think what I was trying to convey was a little bit of that ghost that kind of stressed unstressed feeling but um but yeah that was an intentional thing then i you know in most of my pieces around that time i was being very particular about uh dynamics and about crescendi diminuendi and so forth part part of that was my training to like make it so that it's clear on the page nobody my, my teacher henry brent used to say you'd never put a note on the page without a dynamic it's just never it's that does that is cannot exist in my universe if there's a note on the page it has an articulation and it has a dynamic that's it well so i didn't do the didn't follow his advice so much in articulations but uh, i was following it in dynamics a lot and then at some point i started to sort of drift away from that and i'm like well you know i could envision this being played with other dynamics. And also I found that players, when they are faced with um, a very precise uh, instructions in terms of dynamics articulation, they will follow those and they will feel that they're playing the piece and they're sort of reconstituting it because that piece on the page, it's just marks, right? And so they're sort of like adding water and, and reconstituting into a living thing. It was a living thing once. Now it's been sort of like, you know, put in this grid and we want to make it come alive again here in the, in the concert hall or in the rehearsal room or, or in the practice room, wherever you are. We want that, that living thing to start to breathe. And I found that sometimes people would not look for, okay, what is this piece? What is it saying? Because once you know what it's saying, you don't have to worry about that stuff. Once you know what, what, that, what those bars mean, then you just say it. You know, it's like if you have um, a script and you have all the words, you know, people don't put in there, say this note, a little louder, but say this word a little louder, and then pause here. They rely on the actor to look at that and say, ah, I know what it means. Now I'm going to inhabit that character and say those words, but all that stuff is going to come out because it comes from the meaning of it. So I started to get away from that as an attempt to sort of get players to say, what is it saying? And then to say that. I love that. And I am going to cut this segment out and put it on loop outside of my office because <laughs> it's, it's exactly it. Scripts, words could have the same. Say this staccato, crescendo here through your speech. And we don't do that because we simply get it and feel it. And we need to, as you said, inhabit music in the same way. I can't say it better, so I won't try to repeat. But thank you so much. Preach. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. By the well, way, I have to say that seeing the four of you just makes my heart so warm because I've never worked in an academic environment. I've never been on the faculty. I've never taught composition. Um, I just love writing percussion music 
And I found when I started writing music that when I gave music to percussionists, they were always so ready to play it. I guess there was less literature then than there is now, but percussionists wouldn't look at a new piece and say, well, why should we play this? We have all these string, we have all this other stuff. What is what has this got that we don't have? And the percussions were never like that. It's like, oh, something new. Yeah, let's put it up on the stand. Let's play it. And so I wound up spending a lot of time in percussion rooms at colleges and universities. And the, I just, you know, you guys are such a wonderful, wonderful bunch of people. So open, so willing to meet the composer halfway if he's halfway willing to meet you. And uh, those are wonderful, wonderful times. And it just is wonderful seeing you all there. That, <laughs> First of all, that's, that's so wonderful. I've kind of been out of that world uh, for the last 10 years or so, but um, it's a world I love. And uh, every now and then Nancy Zeltzman will ask me to come to Boston and coach a piece. And it's just like, yeah, this is great. I love it here. Down yeah, it's so it always used to be down in the basement where you wouldn't bother anybody else with your damn snare drums. <laughs> so down in the basement, no windows, but everybody just working their butts off. It's so it's so funny hearing you say that because like it's like if you were to write something for string quartet, it's it's almost like a dare. Like, do you really think you can write something better than Brahms? And for us, like <laughs> Brahms didn't write anything for us. Come on, right on in. <laughs> but I I had a, a question. What's that? He couldn't have. <laughs> he because he didn't have, he had amazing time. I would love to see him at the keyboard, but he didn't have drummer's time. He didn't have, yeah. he did not have that time. And yeah. when I first started writing stuff, there were a lot of percussionists who did not have that time either. They were there because they wanted to play timpani in an orchestra. They wanted to play you know, triangle. And so they had this wonderful sense of classical music time, breathing and expressive. But this idea of time that was like, no, you know, a lot of them just couldn't do it. And now, of course, every percussionist just comes to the table with that. But so one, one thing that all this has made me think of is it's there's this weird like kind of dichotomy I'm finding in your music where at one rate, the idea of it's it's written as like ink on a page it's very formal but then your music also seems to have this this voice and like hearing you talk about the marimba quartet and how it's like sort of dedicated to your wife it's sort of a story of you and your wife uh and it it reminds me of the whole john cage idea of like does music have to say something can music just be sound for sound's sake yeah. What and like in, in my music appreciation class I teach, it's like does we always talk about does music have to have meaning? Does music have to have expression? So it seems like you walk that line in a really fine way. Like, do you find Not that really. music I'm totally I'm totally on the side of I mean for me, no, music is expression. Music okay, gotcha. Is a, music is a human being saying something. I'm I am a fan of John Cage. I'm a fan of music that sees sound in a completely different way, in a sculptural way, in an abstract way, that can be very lovely, but I could no more sit down and write something like that. To me, if, if there's nothing to say, the, the well is dry. The well is dry. It's got to be first a human being saying something. And that's, for, for me, I mean, that's the music I love the most. That's the stuff I'll listen to because I've just got to hear it right now. Yeah. Ben, is that, I mean, maybe I don't know enough about my, my John Cage studies, but I mean, is that even like possible? Like, I know you can intend sound for just sound's sakes, but doesn't that I mean, even like, make yeah, it quote, more impactful and more meaningful? You well, know? the quote from the quote from John Cage is like, I enjoy the sound of Manhattan noise and construction more than the music of Mozart. Um, and so at that rate, yeah, I mean, that is just sound for sound. It's not even conceived yeah. in a musical way. So. Uh, I think I, that's the extreme of it. But. Gotcha. I don't think he was lying. I don't think that was yeah. just No, but I mean, I mean it's like you said, it's like that's it's just not your way of composing. That makes sense. No, there's room, there's plenty of room in this world for all kinds of yeah. reactions to sound and music. So Ben, if you brought that opinion into my music appreciation class, I would just say, hey, you have a nice day. See you later. 
The first musical example I make the first musical example I make them sit through is John Cage's Water Walk. <laughs> so <laughs> I made them do uh I think the hardest thing I made them do was Ligeti Symphonic Poem for a hundred metronomes Ooh. and they like you know, they like hated it and then they come <laughs> back and um but there was always one or two people who just like loved it. And then the rest, you know, all the other 50 of them were just like, oh, why'd you make us do that? And then I, then we get into it and explain it and I read their responses and, and then they end up going like, oh, okay, we, we see why you made us do this. And yeah, it's fun. We'll compare, we'll, we'll compare student evaluations, Casey, see, see who did that. Oh, we can. I have, I have, I have a chili pepper. I have a chili pepper. Do you have a chili pepper? Oh my they God. took those off. They don't I'm have those anymore. I'm pulling it out right now. Anyway, Carly, I think you had something. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're going to spend a lot of time on this. Demonstrate hotness. Hotness. Demonstrate. Can't you see? It's a screenshot from like 1996. That's true. On his. <laughs> they should go in and modify it. Yeah. 10 years ago when he was in shape, chili pepper. Now, not so much. No, come on. Come on. <laughs> Well, All right, up, just kidding. Go on, Carly. Yard work, man. That yard work will do it. I know it's because I've been doing it virtually though for a whole year, so it hasn't. I haven't benefited. Nice. All right, go, go, Carly. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. On a completely different topic, um, Dan. I read in your bio that you studied tabla with Phil Ford and with Ray Spiegel, and I'm wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about your study of tabla. What was your What was your experience with it, and how has it influenced you and in your composing? A huge influence, huge influence. So when I got out of college with a BA in music and at Bennington, it, that was it. It was music. It wasn't composition. It wasn't, it was just some very small school. I knew I was going to want be wanting to write percussion. And I'd studied composition, but I didn't feel like I had a rhythmic concept. I didn't feel like okay, there are stress notes and unstressed notes. And in three, four, the downbeat is stressed. And it's like, and just like very kind of idiotically simple way of thinking about time. And I thought, well, I have to, I have to get some kind of concept going. And I had learned a little bit about North Indian music, Indian music in general, especially North Indian classical music. And of course the tabla is the premier rhythmic instrument there. And um, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but there's a vast body of composed pieces. I mean, it's an imp improvisational form, but in the middle of a performance, you'll often hear a one minute composition that, you know, that all tabla drummers in that tradition will know. And it's, it's a very linear approach. So there's an underlying time that everyone has in their, in their head. And it's often being, kept, you know, people will be waving hands. So the audience will, if they want to, can sort of know where the time is. And on top of that, it's just a line, again, with lots of different tone qualities, you know, dead notes and different, but it, it makes a line and it is then just chopped and splayed out over the time. So it's moved by a 16th note, it's, it's moved, it's doubled, it's halved, it's, you know, it's manipulated in all kinds of really amazing ways. Um, there's a cadence convention where you repeat the same figure three times, but it's in a different place in the bar each time. And it's a really fascinating challenge for your brain to try to be able to hear these phrases that are identical and but they have a completely different meaning because they're in a different spot in the time and so tabla gave me that way of looking at music since i wanted to write percussion especially a lot of unbished percussion i had to i needed some kind of framework on which to build things and i found that we all have a sort of internal meter going at any given moment. We're listening to music. Sometimes we can't find it. We're kind of drifting around or we're going back and forth. But it's kind of there's something in us that wants that regular thing. And then we hear on top of that the rhythms that are going on. And to be able to 
manipulate that so keep the keep the listener have the same time but now this thing that used to be here it's here and it's there and it has a different meaning and so you can use it expressively as a compositional tool so that's what the tabla was all about i love the way that you're talking about this rhythmic concept um you know like everything everything has a place and, and its meaning depends on the place that it is i remember when i was younger um, thinking about like sometimes as percussionists, especially younger students would get really obsessed with evenness and you know accuracy and consistency and thinking what you know all the 16th notes are this but like we all know like that's not that's not what it is right 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 <laughs> so I, I appreciate what you're saying um, Ben yeah, I think so, so if you play a, if you play something like that and you play the if you have this time going you play it here, and then you play it there, and then you get rid of the time. These two things sound very different. I mean, it, conceptually, they're the same in that they're the same array of tones with the same amount of time between them. But because they mean something different, if you pull away, if you put them both down and then pull away from the time, it's like, no, they are different in a consistent way because the person playing it is saying one thing in the first instance and saying something different in the, in the second instance. Yeah, it, I, I have a couple of students that are working on like some Bob Becker sort of Indian inspired things now. And, and the way that I think about it is in Western music from, from the beginning, we're taught of rhythm is divisive. So in 4-4, you have a whole note. We've all seen the chart, like the whole note, the two half notes, the quarter notes and so on. And like Carly said, things have different stresses based on where they are in the bar. And so then all of a sudden, when you go on to some very advanced work by Alejandro Vignal, when you have a 516 bar dropped in, it's incredibly difficult to keep up with where the, because you're trying to count in 16th notes and it's too fast, it doesn't work. And Indian music rhythms are additive rather than divisive. So a quarter note followed by a 16th, followed by an eighth, followed by a 16th. It, it doesn't matter the way that the bar is divided. It's how all the notes add up to fill up a rhythm. And a very good demonstration, if anyone wants to, to try it at home, is a very common four-syllable phrase in Indian music is takadimi. So you can say takadimi, 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 takadimi on four beats. That's all good and fine. But if you replace one of the takadimis with takita, a three-note group, it throws where the beat is in the pattern. So hopefully it comes across on Zoom semi-okay, but like takadimi, 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 takita, takadimi, 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 takita, takadimi, takadimi. The beat keeps on flipping relative to the 416th note grouping. And it no longer feels like this is the downbeat. The downbeat feels like where I'm saying ta. And as a Western musician that hasn't practiced this enough, I actually have to kind of force myself and start uh, like stressing verbally takadimi taka like the ka sound even though it's pretty unnatural <laughs> but yeah that's yeah. A, such a wonderful way of thinking about rhythm and there's like the bob becker of course mudra that everyone knows is a very indian inspired piece and he also has a couple others one is called nuthan which is a snare drum solo with just sort of a, a rhythmic loop and i know there's a new snare drum book out now i actually haven't haven't seen it uh, i've just seen it advertised online called uh rudimental like T-A-A-L at the end referring to Indian Tala. Uh, that's, that's rudiments applied over Indian music. So, hey, yeah. Uh, I, I have a question for you, Ben and, and Dan. Um, is is this different than polymeter? Because um, I know like cross rhythm is one term. And I and the only actually going in percussion pedagogy class and the Michael Udow book, those terms come up. And um, as far as I can tell, they're basically the same, but I've, the only distinction I can see is that there might be a cultural distinction and that if you're playing indie say, music, like you're doing, at, they call it cross rhythm. Yeah, at the very least, I would call it dangerously close to that. Like, are um, they different? I'm, I'm, I don't yeah, know. Well, the, the, the only reason I would have reservations about calling it that is I asked my Indian music guru about uh, so when you do this, like you feel the beat as like the E of the beat, right? Like the talk, and he said, no, like the beat is still here. And so to me, what you're talking about is you're implying that the beat is actually shifted in my mind and I have this meter running against this meter that has a shifted beat. And he said he didn't think about it that way, but I, you know, I can't answer for every Indian musician. I'll put it this way, orally, it sounds like polymeter, whether it's okay. actually that and the musician's mind, I don't know. Gotcha. Dan, I don't know if you had anything <laughs> to add to that. Not much. It's just, I think that that 
the idea of polyrhythms is a, is a bit nebulous. So we can go various ways depending on how you're thinking about it. Um, and it's sometimes I see it used to just to simply say that there's two meters going on simultaneously. They're not lining up with each other. Um, which, yeah, why not? Um, but that's, that's not what I'm talking about. But I, I think I hear it more used in that way than in what I'm arguing for. And it may just be me. I kind of think of myself as being a typical human being in many ways, in like the way I hear music, the way I respond to it. And I always find that if, I, if I'm listening to something that's got time and it's got rhythm and I don't know where the one is, I am very unsettled. And I, my mind just decides where a one is. And it may not be where the people who are playing the music feel like it is, but my mind always wanders towards there's a one here. There's a downbeat and everything else is kind of off that. It's the same way that if I'm hearing a series of pitches, my mind is going to decide one of those is the tonic, right? And a clever composer is going to be aware of that and then shift where the tonic is, even from bar to bar or within the bar. But there's always this unspoken understanding that everybody knows what the tonic is. Now we're in the dominant key or whatever. So we've, we've modulated, but we know that we're all moving together. And I think it's the same way with time. I think that somehow we always gravitate towards there's a one there somewhere. To me, polyrhythm, the idea of polyrhythms is a separate thing. It, it's just the implication of two you know, unrelated rhythms piled on top of each other. I think as a listener, we're either going to locate a one somewhere there, or we're just gonna start experiencing it as non-rhythmic sound. Just like if we can't locate where the tonic is, we're gonna start hearing it as as a, you know, a 12 tone music or something that doesn't have a tonal center. We'll start hearing it in a different way altogether. I think uh, to kind of like also go along with this, there's the idea of how the composer conceives it, how the performer conceives it and how the listener hears it. Yeah. And those aren't necessarily all the same thing. And one, one example that comes to mind is the, uh, I have a student work on the Carter March right now. And so beginning the tempo of the, I guess the left-hand part is 105. The tempo of the right-hand part is 140. And so he just sort of defaulted to writing it based off the left-hand part. But if you put the metronome on the right hand, the whole thing just immediately feels screwed up and you can't do it even though you're playing the exact same thing as you would if the metronome was clicking 105. Um, fascinating, right? It's so fascinating. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's all. It's, it's kind of like twist your mind to think about it. At the end of the day, rhythm and meter, it's all just ratios of time and you can organize it in certain ways and call it certain things and well i just i love the experience <laughs> of so if i'm writing a piece that's going to be all unpitched percussion i generally come up with some kind of rhythmic theme it's usually something that i'm banging out on the bathroom sink as i'm brushing my teeth or something but for some reason i feel like it's got potential and then i'll just start thinking of it in different places different speeds different places in the bar and just started mashing it around. And occasionally it'll be in some place and it will have, it'll have a, a kick to it. It'll be something really interesting about it when it's like that. And those are the materials of the piece. And then at some point, it'll come into your head in a completely different place in the bar, slightly changed or in a, a different time and a different meter. And now it's sort of morphing into other things. And all of those are, are great materials to build a piece out of. I, uh, for anyone listening, I just wrote in our chat that all this is starting to hurt my head. So we should talk about something else. <laughs> Carly, I think you had some news you were going to share with us today. Yeah, I'm actually still stuck on thinking about playing the Carter March with the opening at 140 instead of 105. <laughs> Did that make sense? What I was saying? Like, it's yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah the, the dotted eighth is 140. Yeah. I've yeah, never it, thought about that before. It is, it is rough. <laughs> once, <laughs> once you learn to do it, it's actually okay. But it is like, man, I, I, my mind doesn't work this way at all. Yeah, how interesting. 
Well, so so we'll relieve your your headache, Ben. Um, we're going to be talking today about an article in the Ithacan. It's written by Jillian Blyer, and this is the Ithacan is the the newspaper um, now online uh, put out by Ithaca College, I believe, right? Anyone? Yeah, yeah. I think okay. so out by Ithaca College. And of course, we probably all heard this kind of surprising, a little bit strange announcement um, a few weeks ago that Ithaca has announced that they'll be eliminating the Masters of Music in performance, conducting, composition, and Suzuki pedagogy and string performance, which are all two-year programs. It's a little bit shocking to a lot of people, um, especially since the school was originally founded as a music conservatory all the way back in 1892. So that's kind of the core and the root of of Ithaca College. Um, so to think about what kind of implications this could have, like beyond, of course, the obvious is that students won't be able to go to Ithaca and study and get a master's degree, especially in performance, but those other degrees as well. Um, but other things, you know, that, that come to mind, and some of these are discussed in the article are things like all of the students, especially undergraduates, will miss out on having kind of a mentorship relationship and the guidance of having graduate students um, at the school and in the studio. And I think we all know, like we learned so much from the people that we're studying with and what a huge, what a huge benefit to be able to, you know, walk next door as you're practicing and knock on the door and say, Hey, graduate student, you know, like, what do I do here? How can you help me with this? Like, what a, what an amazing thing. And so of course they'll miss out on that. Um, but also for this, for the school itself, Graduate students are often serving the school as teaching assistants, you know, and, and it, it goes both ways. The graduate students are gaining college teaching experience that they'll need later if they're going to enter that field. Um, but they're also teaching non-music major classes, um, secondary instrument classes. They're accompanying for recitals. They're running the school's social media um, and sometimes conducting ensembles. So there's a whole lot of service going on there too. Um, the, the college has announced that they're recommending the discontinuance of these programs that are consistently not generating net income, um, what, which for me begs a couple of questions. The first is, is that like a legitimate, okay reason to cut a program? You know, is college that much a, a business where we only want to be perpetuating and supporting programs that are financially paying for themselves. Um, but then this, the second question is, according to this article, at least the graduate music programs are bringing in a surplus of $125,000, something like that, um, every year. And the, the financial benefit too of having graduate students who are um, who are serving the school, you know, if you think about hiring a, one professional pianist to accompany the students in a school versus having graduate assistants do it, it you know, it could be 50 to $70,000 per year for one pianist. Um, so it's it's interesting to, to say the least, I think, on a financial standpoint. Um, so uh, additionally, the school is recommending cutting full time equivalent faculty positions in the School of Music from 87 in the 2019-2020 fiscal year to 66 by the fall of 2023. So that's quite a few positions that they're cutting. Um, you know, personally, of course, I can't say much on Ithaca's financial situation and how this change will affect it, but I think what does this mean for our profession to cut graduate degrees in music and especially what happens if other schools, I know a lot of schools are hurting financially right now, at least I expect, what, is it, what does it mean for us if schools start cutting masters and doctoral programs for reasons like they're not generating enough income? Um, I know that personally, I grew enormously in those two years of the masters and, and three with the DMA. And I really can't imagine having been able to learn and grow that way in those years outside of a graduate program. If I just graduated with my bachelor's where I was and then, you know, was working and, and I mean, learning never stops, but to be in that environment, I can't think of any replacement for it. So um, it's a lot to think about, a lot to talk about. Does anybody have any thoughts? I mean, uh, I am I am also not sure. I'd love to know what is the minimum income that uh, administration would like to see for a program to be considered, you know, worth it. Um, I am also a little bit, I find it a little bit troublesome, that thing that where they said, well, you know, it's great to have a graduate program because those students work for way less money than professionals do and do a good job. I mean, paying, you know, a graduate student 
to work for eight to ten thousand dollars a year and do a lot of the work that professionals could be doing also should be reconsidered especially if they're international students because they can't make any other money so you know that's that's not easy to live off of um but i mean ultimately it's just uh, an awful situation for those students who are there because they're going through a tra transition now and to those faculty i mean cutting 21 faculty positions is is quite a lot um but i do wonder if it's just an exception or if we're going to be seeing more of this in the future. Carly, I had a question and it doesn't say it in the article, so you may not know, um, but did the administrators take any pay cut? I don't know. Because that to me is always the first question when you have administrators that are making $150,000 a year and Ithaca is a very expensive private school and students are paying, I don't know how much in tuition, let's just say $30,000 a year in tuition or something like that to go there. It seems like a good place to start would be lowering tuition if you could and administrators taking a pay cut um, and even faculty members taking a pay cut before eliminating, eliminating faculty positions. And obviously none of us know the history there. We can't speak to what's been attempted in the past, but I think like one thing the article did hit on, it's so shocking that the entire university was founded upon its music program. So to take a hit like this is pretty massive. Well, and in our field, like it's, I mean, we, we all know, like, it's so common that you at least have a master's degree. Like if you're going to be performing, if, especially if you're going to be doing any kind of college teaching, like it's almost required. It's, it's expected for so many people like to just cut that. What does it mean for us? And certainly at this point, it's like, well, you can't get a master's at Ithaca. Um, okay, fine. You know, like every school doesn't have to offer every single degree, but um, you know, if a lot of schools follow suit, it, could be a, an interesting trend and maybe it won't be so common that people stay in school and, and, you know, multiple graduate degrees, maybe we'll be in the field earlier. I don't know. I think um, now is an appropriate time for one of our famous readings from the university title generator. You guys seen this? <laughs> right? Yes. Universitytitlegenerator.com. We've done this before. So here's one associate coordinator of the committee on academic technology, $62,000. Click here <laughs> if this position is not prestigious enough for you. Okay, definitely not. Click Associate Chancellor of Athletic Compliance to the Committee on Dining Excellence. <laughs> <laughs> Half a million dollars. Nice. Um, all right, one more. At least I'll one more. I'll take it. That's yeah, prestigious it. enough for me. Uh, all right, Associate Provost for the Committee on Learning Climate, $250,000. Uh, that one was okay. Uh, Deputy Assistant Manager of the Office of Learning Communication. That was the communications. That one doesn't even make sense. $47,000. Deputy Provost for the Task Force on Strategic Athletic Technology. Half a million dollars. <laughs> I think a lot of times people don't get like, it's not just like, oh, the, the admit, the, um, um, the, um, uh, uh, what can I think of the words? Administration. The, um, and thank you administrations can like the administrators can't just like oh i'll take my money and move it over here it's like so much of it is based on the stock market so much of where money comes from is like it's not here yet like the planning we're going to do for next year it's like all it's like hypothetical like we don't have it yet um so i think it's very easy to say like oh well the administration should just like you know, they should take this money and just like move it over here. It's like, yeah, it doesn't, it can't move from over here to over there. And when you're in these big budget discussions, you can't, it's like, hey, here's this pile of money. We're not allowed to move any of it. Like the state legislation won't let us move any of it. Um, and I and I think, yeah, it's, it's, of course, it's sad. Like, I don't, I don't want Ithaca's um, program to be cut. Like, I mean, of course, like I have my, my doctoral student here with me right now. He got his master's degree with Gordon Stout at Ithaca and just says like wonderful, wonderful things about it. I mean, a lot of our good friends have been through the Ithaca program. And um, yeah, of course, like we don't want it to be cut. Um, but I, I think people don't understand like how expensive programs are because you think like, well, wait, each student is paying this much certainly the school is making money but when you look at how much faculty costs faculty are really expensive because you're not just talking about a faculty salary every year like you're not just talking about 
um, you know, I don't know, $60,000 a year, you're talking about $60,000 a year plus benefits, plus the entire, uh, plus retirement. Like you're talking about sustaining that for, you know, well, also 35 music, years. So you have to music promise that for 35 are, years. Music faculty are often a very poor deal because you're a full-time person that yep. deals with 12 students, something like that. I mean, not, not many at all. Right. The proportion of hour to credit pay load is very, that's why they say music is so expensive. When they say music is so expensive, they're not talking about, oh, timpani are expensive. No, they're talking about the faculty hours, the fact that we do one-on-one -on -one lessons, the fact that we do classes like percussion literature, where there's like eight people in it. Um, you know, administrators look at those numbers and they go, wait, that's insane. You can't have a class with only eight people in it. Get, get that up to, get that up to 20 at least. You know, you hear about that stuff all the time at schools that are struggling. So it, I think it's, it's like really, really complicated and, and, um, it's surprising to hear it happen at Ithaca, but it's, it's not surprising to hear when it happens anywhere. It's like, it's like, it's so expensive. I was told once that to, um, to, to have a faculty position, like promised, you need a million dollars, like on hand. Wow. And that's not to pay their immediate salary and benefits for a year. Of course not. That's to promise that line. That's why they say this is a faculty line. So of course, if you're running a graduate program, you need more hours, you need more faculty. So yeah, of course, like you're going to need more lines if you're going to do it effectively. And, and more lines. So anyway, like, oh, each grad student pays $70,000. How can they not afford this? Like, well, because each faculty, it, it costs like a lot, <laughs> like a lot more than their salary. Well, and of course, there's there's more to budgeting at a, you know, university or college than any of us will probably ever know. But um, it's, it's sad to see if that's, it's sad to see that happening at Ithaca. And it's certainly, it would be, yeah. It would be concerning if it becomes a if it becomes a trend. Um, Dan, as as being someone outside of academia, do you have any thoughts on all of this? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's what I've spent. I've been up to Ithaca, and I love the music department. And uh, I'm a piano technician, and I'm really good friends with the guy who was the technician up there for a long time. I don't know. So it just makes me sad from that standpoint. But in terms of all the stuff you guys are talking about. I'm afraid I, I don't really have enough underground experience. But, but you you probably at least want the link to that website I was reading from, right? Oh yes, definitely. Okay. I thought I thought you'd at least have that, that to, to say. I think Dan's thought is probably that he's happy he doesn't work in academia. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm not suited for it. So yeah. I mean both my kids are, are academics and, and they love it and they do great in it, so. Well, Dan, I, I have a question you might be able to answer or you might not be able to answer, but if you are familiar with the Piano Tech at Ithaca, uh, I was up there a few years ago. I was playing a, a double concerto for marimba with the piano reduction. And we discovered the piano was tuned to like A equals 448 or something just crazy high like that. And so we, we were kind of like, well, it's just there's nothing we can do 10 minutes before the recital to fix the marimbas or the piano. <laughs> wow. So but, was it the summertime? Uh, no, it was, it was definitely winter. It was very, very cold. Beats me. Just a <laughs> weird, weird thing. Door, so who knows but I, and it was like, well, what if we grabbed the piano from next door and like it, literally all the pianos we could find were tuned way high like that. It was bizarre. Really? Yeah. Oh, I have to ask Donna. When was this? What year was it? Uh, it would have been sometime around 2015. All right. Hey, uh, Ben, at Utah State University, where I did my undergrad, there was a guy who would sneak into the piano area and. <laughs> so I don't know, like that might have made him go sharp. I don't know. So maybe, maybe. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's well known. Yeah. Right. So maybe, maybe maybe Ithaca had the piano come by or something. Yeah. You ever gotten that phone call, Dan? Yeah, like, we have a piano that's really flat. Could you come over? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that oh, that really God. did happen. And and like we we were given a description of this person and and campus police was like doing rounds through the building to try. That's all he would apparently do. 
And no, no description later on. Why? No explanation. I mean, why not, Ksenia? <laughs> <laughs> why? Yeah, why? I mean, I don't think to make the, the, box to make the pianos at A448. <laughs> oh, God. Let's change topic really quickly. Um, well, Dan, I had one more question I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you had mentioned to me your work, Marimba Singular, uh, and there's a few really good recordings on YouTube of that. And it's a piece that actually reminds me a lot of David Lang. It has that sort of rhythmic pinging quality to it that I associate with David Lang um, with sort of almost like a Steve Reich sound to the the pitch selections. Could you tell us about the how that work? So like most composers, I keep a notebook of little licks and tunes that sort of pop into my head. And when I go to write a piece, I, you know, I go through and I see, okay, what's going to work here? And I had a whole bunch of, of them that I kind of liked, but they weren't really good enough to be a whole piece. And I had just spent a month in the hospital. I had almost died because I had a really bad uh, fungal infection all over my body that was finally getting into my lungs. So when they finally figured out what it was, I had to spend a month while they were getting rid of it. The whole time I was hooked up to two IVs. Well, not the whole time, but a lot of it. And these particular IVs, whenever they got a little kink in them, or even when they didn't, they would beep so that the nurse would come in. And it was beep, 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 beep. It was a B. It was about at that tempo. And I was hearing this, <laughs> I was hearing this sound like all the time. And when I got out and I started writing this piece, that became the, the motif of the piece. And it appears in its natural state right towards the end of the piece. But otherwise it functions as the fabric of the piece. The idea of three notes repeated, absolutely even space between them. Not necessarily B, lots of different pitches, and not necessarily any particular meter or tempo or anything. Sometimes spaced way far apart, sometimes close together. And then I started taking some of my favorite uh, licks and things from my notebooks that I hadn't ever used anywhere else and putting them in that framework. And, uh, and that's, how, that's how it got built. And it's got a very intricate construction to it. I really, I'm kind of proud of that piece because I feel like it's, it's emotionally valid at the same time that it's highly rigorous intellectually. And uh, that's something I'm always a fan of in other people's music. So It sounds yeah. difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, like it, but it well, sounds it's very a, difficult. It's a, it's, it's a solo piece and it can be done, but it's, uh, it's not easy, no. It's not easy, yeah. Yeah, it's dedicated to my brother. Excellent. So, that's, well, thanks that's so much. There's something to say about my brother's personality. <laughs> Can be difficult. But what it is, I can't articulate in words, as you know. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for your your generous time in joining us today. It's been a blast, and we will see everyone on episode 281.